Stand clear of the closing doors, please. Ride the 5 train uptown through New York City, and you'll start to peel back the city's layers. Roll through the chic streets of Union Square, past the mansions in Lenox Hill, and stop at 86th Street on the Upper East Side. Here, the average resident lives to be nearly 88. But take the train one stop further north to East Harlem, and you'll arrive in the poorest neighborhood in Manhattan. The average income is less than a quarter of the Upper East Side, and the average lifespan? It drops to 75 and a half. That's more than 12 years of life lost in just one subway stop. So there's a great deal of variation in life expectancy by neighborhood. Dr. Mark Garevich is the chair of the Department of Population Health at the NYU School of Medicine. And that doesn't track solely by uh, income. That tracks also uh, as a reflection of exposure to racism and a whole host of uh, economic and social conditions that really run throughout life in the city. Uh, we see it in terms of proximity to highways and, and, uh, and emissions. Uh, we see it in terms of safe park space to get outside and, uh, and exercise in, and in terms of the quality of schools. So none of these are uniformly distributed uh, across a large urban setting, and so as a result, you see local variations in, uh, in life expectancy. New York City is a famously challenging place to live. But overall, life expectancy here is higher than in most U.S. cities. Why is that? Well, New York is densely populated, so people walk more and drive less. That means less obesity and fewer traffic fatalities. Public policy also plays a role. The city's vigorous anti-smoking campaign cuts smoking rates in half. Plus, 40% of the city's residents are immigrants. And immigrants to the United States have among the highest life expectancies in the world. Before the pandemic... Overall life expectancy in New York City was higher than the average lifespan of every U.S. state. But that's an average. Keep going north in the 5 train to the Bronx, the northernmost borough in New York City, and life expectancy takes another dip. The Bronx has the lowest life expectancy of the five boroughs. In fact, it's the least healthy county in all of New York State. This is an Eastchester, Dyer Avenue bound, five local trains. The next stop is Baychester Avenue. My producer, Aaron Bump, and I get off at the second to last stop. The average lifespan here is only 78 and a half years, but we're not here for Baychester. Aaron and I walk onto an overpass of I-95 and towards Co-op City. As we get closer, it's 35 identical high-rises start to loom over us. It's intimidating, and it looks kind of depressing. Co-op City is more utilitarian than artistic, but it's magical nonetheless. Because when we get across the overpass, just like that, six and a half years is added to life. In Co-op City, average life expectancy is 85. But you won't mistake it for the Upper East Side. Co-op City is working class, the median income is in the high 60,000s, about the same as the New York City average, fewer people have college degrees, and there are fewer immigrants. Diabetes rates are high, ozone levels are worse, yet co-op city residents have among the longest lifespans in all of New York City. And we're here to learn why. From the Stanford Center on Longevity, this is Century Lives, Place Matters. I'm your host, Ken Stern. The far northeast corner of the Bronx is a place of grand ideas. 
the most exciting event in the history of entertainment. Before it was Co-op City, it was Freedom Land, an enormous amusement park. Freedom Land, where the story of America comes to life. When it opened in 1960, it dwarfed its cross-country rival, Disneyland. The park was shaped like the United States and mimicked the country's regional history. For just a dollar, visitors could cruise the Great Lakes by tugboat and tour the Garden District of New Orleans. They could get tossed around on the San Francisco earthquake ride. Hey, what's happening over there in Chicago? And help put out the Chicago fires. Live flames were reignited every 15 minutes. I want to go there. It does sound great, though you're about 60 years too late. Freedom Land closed in 1964, but memories of it remain. Lorraine Cortez Vasquez visited Freedom Land as a child. She describes its American West sector, a model of a cowboy town. When the West was really wild. Now this may look like the old West, but the time is today, and the place is Freedom Land. It was great. They would have stagecoach rides, and they would have corralling horses, bank robberies, and saloon fights, and you would live, you know, you could experience what life in a rural, well-developed, you know, or developing a town was. It was affordable, obviously, because we could go there. Um, And then it disappeared. And it wasn't until years later when we saw the development of Co-op City that we realized this was Freedom Land. Freedom Land became Co-op City. When Freedom Land closed, another ambitious project took its place, Co-op City, the largest cooperative housing project ever built. Cooperative housing is collectively owned by its residents. Co-ops began to flower in New York City in the 1920s, mostly driven by labor unions that saw cooperative housing as a solution to unsafe and unaffordable housing. The leader of the effort was Abraham Kazan, the head of a cooperative housing trust called the United Housing Foundation. Through the decades, Kazan built more than 20 cooperative housing projects, but Co-op City was the granddaddy of them all. Bernie Silich is Co-op City's resident historian. He talks about Kazan's efforts. But he had visions that the city needed housing, and he envisioned building a city. And this is the pearl of his vision, Co-op City. In the late 1960s, Co-op City was thought to be the future of affordable housing in America. But to Abraham Kazan, it was more than that. It was the realization of his vision. Kazan wrote about it in the late 1930s. Housing can mold the social fabric. The social outlook and the very ethic and morale of our people can be transformed more effectively through housing than through any other social agency, for no other institution touches so many facets of life as one's home and community. Co-op City was built on marshland, but it was also built upon a foundation of concrete values to ensure that it was accessible to the working class. Here's Bernie again. One of the rules was service, not profit. So they'd established a rule that if you buy the apartment from the co-op, you have to sell back to the co-op for what you paid, fixed equity, cap on equity. And that concept is what Co-op City was built around. Co-op city shareholders buy and sell their apartments at fixed prices. So for the foreseeable future, Co-op City will remain affordable for working-class New Yorkers, just like it has been since the first residents moved in in 1968. 
When Linda Burke moved to Co-op City with her family the next year, the development was still under construction. When I came as a high school senior, it was like an adventure. It was, um, in my mind, I guess what I thought the wild, wild west was like during that era. Um, We didn't have any streets. The streets were dirt. There was no supermarket. A lot of rodents running around. It was just really different coming from being an urbanite, a New Yorker, and then living in something that was just so unfinished. And it made all of us as neighbors really close. We, we were like all huddled together. We were surviving this new frontier together. Co-op City has come a long way since then. Today, Aaron and I meet Linda at one of the three community centers in Co-op City. We're in an old classroom that serves as headquarters for a local advocacy organization, the Coalition to Save Affordable Housing. So in the early days, Co-op City truly was a cooperative experience. Everything was about working together towards a common goal, um, putting our forces together to save on the cost of different things. Um, When we moved, there was just a handful of black families here. We were one of maybe four in my building. Um, Most of the development was Jewish. Um, Things very much centered around a Jewish lifestyle that um, we began to learn. (laughs) We began to learn by living in the middle of it. Um, Neighbors were neighbors. It didn't matter what color you were. It didn't matter where you were really from. People were really very neighborly. Now it's a housing development, you know, that's very often referred to as an affordable housing development. Co-op City remains the world's largest housing co-op. It's home to a community of nearly 45,000 people who live in more than 15,000 units. Another of Co-op City's official values is non-discriminatory diversity. And throughout its history, the ethnic makeup of Co-op City has shifted alongside the changes in New York City at large. Today, Co-op City is approximately 60% Black, nearly 30% Latino, and about 10% White. Co-op City is a large, right now, multiracial community. We have eight parking garages, three shopping centers. Supermarkets, salons, diners. Churches, temples, a mosque. Almost any kind of doctor you can think of. A power plant that provides all the electricity and hot water for the community. We have a police force. We have our own sanitation department. So no one ever sees garbage around here. So you can imagine with as many units as we have, there's a lot of garbage. But it's picked up daily from each building. There's no reason for um, squirrels, you know, raccoons, mice, whatever. So we, you know, we proudly do a pretty good job of running this city. Linda speaks from experience. For five years, she was the president of the River Bay Board of Directors, which runs Co-op City. In other words, Linda was the mayor, and she loves this place. Very big part of the design of Co-op City was the greenery. So you'll notice that there's a lot of grass and greenery, and the buildings, as big as they are are not really on top of each other. Co-op City is spread out over a square mile, and 80% of it is green space, an extraordinary figure in the dense urban core of New York City. Co-op City has so much space because it was built at the very edge of the city. It's isolated from the rest of the Bronx by an interstate highway that encircles it in all directions except east. These apartments, as you see, were set on the water. So they're waterfront. Some of the views are just 
unbelievable, just magnificent. You see up and down the whole eastern coast. Um, you see from all the way upstate New York, like maybe Rye, all the way down to the World Trade Center. We brag about our apartments. We have very large rooms, very large closets, parquet floors, large terraces, central air conditioning. Utilities are included in your maintenance. It's like a secret that a lot of people don't know about. And perhaps the biggest co-op city secret of all? Owners or cooperators pay only twenty to $40,000 to own these apartments, depending upon size. The average apartment in the Bronx costs about 20 times that. So while most New Yorkers are rent burdened, meaning they pay at least 30% of their income in rent, cooperators aren't. And that, as it turns out, has a significant impact on health. Here's Mark Ravich again. To me, it's really a lesson about the fundamental power of affordable housing. There are a number of ways in which housing affects health. Uh, one is simply in the safety of the housing. So if uh, the housing is shot through with mold, uh, then one is at risk for chronic lung conditions, uh, asthma, uh, and related that over time take a real toll on health. Uh, and then there are economic factors like the its affordability. So if you think about it, you know, if your housing is relatively unaffordable, then your amount of discretionary income is squeezed. You, you're, you're barely making the rent. When you then go to buy healthy food, it's out of reach. So whether it's being able to buy more healthy food when one goes to the supermarket, uh, or uh, being able to spend more time with friends as opposed to uh, working uh, two or three jobs, there's less stress, and it's simply a healthier situation. And over the years, uh, we understand now that those are the kinds of stressors or protectors, buffers, that, uh, that contribute to long life. Affordable housing is the same thing as healthful housing in that sense. Co-op City is safe. Its buildings are well-maintained, it's connected by walkable paths, and crime rates are low. So as residents age, they don't move out of Co-op City. As Linda Burke puts it, why would they? When they say co-op city or city within a city, that is true for everyone, but even more so for seniors, because you don't have to travel far. Everything is, is right here in a concentrated area of the community. How do you think about aging in place and sort of the challenges of growing old? Why is this I'll a good never place grow in? old. I'll never grow old. <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> I turned 70 last weekend. Happy birthday. So I am growing old. <laughs> and that's hard to believe. In my mind, I'm still 40. So it's, it's, a, little, it's a little hard to, to, to accept the fact that, yes, I am growing in place. I was sewing last night, and my fingers didn't have the same nimbleness they've always had. And I'm like, oh, Lord, <laughs> signs of aging. Um, it happens, but it's easier to do it in a, in a community that you're familiar with and that you know people. Um, I think aging in place in a community that is so community-driven, neighbors look out for neighbors, that you couldn't ask for a better situation to age in. I mean, you have a neighbor you've lived next to for 30, 40 years. You know, when you go to the grocery store, you ask them, do they need something? Um, if you haven't seen them in a day or two, you knock on their door, make sure everything's okay. So, you know, you talk about meeting people where they are. Well, for the seniors, people pretty much come to them meet them where they are. And so I think that does help 
live a little longer. Dr. Gurevich seconds the power of aging in place. The beauty of that model is that people are spending their middle life in the same place as they're spending their uh, late life. And without the disruption of a transition to a separate home or facility uh, in which to age. And you maintain your social connections with other people that you have built over the decades. And that is nourishing. That's like inherently healthful. Ideally, people would have the opportunity and the resources to stay in place and to age in place until they really can't care for themselves anymore. And that is the beauty of of a NORC. A NORC, a naturally occurring retirement community. Once people started talking about it, I, I don't know when it really started, maybe about 10 years ago or so. I, I, you know, it just started to be thrown around, and, um, and we proudly wear it. Co-op City is the nation's largest NORC. A naturally occurring retirement community is a place where at least 40% of heads of households are older adults. NORCs aren't specifically designed for older folks. They're just places that attract or retain aging residents because their resources naturally support older people's needs, like safety, community, and affordability. That's one of the hallmarks of NORCs is the affordability. In some neighborhoods where it has occurred naturally, it's usually because people are in affordable housing. That's Lorraine Cortez-Vasquez again. You heard her earlier reminiscing about Freedom Land. Now she's the commissioner of New York City's Department for the Aging. She describes the benefits of NORCs. But it's also the similarity in values, income, that just make it a success for an older adult. And anything that eliminates stressors, that, that gives familiarity, all of that leads to longevity. Things that eliminate stress, like being connected to the world around you. Aaron and I peer out a window on the 18th floor of a co-op city tower. Linda Collins points out the view from her apartment. If you look out this way, you can actually see uh, the city. I oh, think if you, you yeah, can. Oh, yeah. my goodness. How far is it sort of into the city from here? Ten how, miles. Ten miles. And how do you get there? We have a train, if you look. It's the five train, a 15-minute walk away. Actually, here comes the express bus now. It's coming from Manhattan. And the last stop is at the end of my street. We have a bus and a train to everywhere you need to go. Linda moved to Co-op City with her husband, Mike, a decade ago. She had just retired at the sprightly age of 55, and they sought a supportive environment to age in. They're in good company here in Co-op City, where more than half of the households have a resident over the age of 60. When we retired, we knew that we couldn't like live in the midst of a bunch of young people with children and noise and running and, and all these things. We needed to be around people who were settled our age, where they know the things that we talk about. When you're in a conversation here, you can talk about anything and you will see your past, you will see your family, you will see your own community because these are the people who are of that certain age. You know, when you're 30, you can move to Brooklyn from California and make some friends. You'll find new people to hang out with in the latest bar and whatever. When you're 65, there ain't no people out there waiting to meet you. So you're here. This is an oasis for, the, for people who are growing older because you've, you've already got your community. And I think most people feel that way. But at the same time, living in Co-op City makes Linda feel young. My sister came to visit me a few years back and she said, 
wow, these old ladies are sharp. They wear their little heels. They dress up. They're not like the old ladies that you kind of see in the neighborhoods. You know, they get to be 65 or 70. They don't really dress up anymore. They, they feel old because you're the old person in a young community. When you're like 65 and you're a youngin', oh, wow, this is a great thing. And I think being around people who are your age or older who, do, who haven't gotten that down old feeling because they live around people who are older and still doing things, um, it changes your perception and it changes your attitude, I really think. So it sounds like you have a fairly vibrant social life here. Absolutely. Everyone here has a vibrant social life. Really? Tell us, tell us about it. People know you. You know, you don't just pass in, 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 in a silence. Here, people know people. They care about you. and They know your story. In New York City, or I, I, I'll say probably any big city, um, you're just not going to find that. You know, we know, even in, in tall high-rises, people don't necessarily know each other. You're passing in the elevator. You're not really getting to know good morning, right? Good evening, happy holidays. You don't really get to know those people. Here, it's just so different. And people don't feel funny because they see us all talking. If you're new and somebody says, hi, how you doing? What, you know, I'm so-and-so. They don't feel, if you're in a regular New York City kind of situation, you're like, this guy's probably a pickpocket or something. <laughs> you know, because who's friendly? Who's friendly? You know, you, you, you just don't do that. But here, you, you don't have that feeling because you see everybody talks to everybody. Hey, how you doing? How's your mother? How's your you know, grandkids? Everybody knows everybody. Commissioner Cortez Vasquez knows how important tight-knit communities like Co-op City are for older adults' health. And for all of our health, for that matter. Social isolation, we all discovered in the last two and a half years, was devastating. We saw that in your grandchildren's performance in school. You saw that in your teenager's life. All of us were totally impacted, negatively impacted by social isolation. The difference for an older adult is that that also has impact on your health. So your blood pressure goes up, your, the likelihood of all other health complications elevates by social isolation. So we work very, very hard to break social isolation. And so does Co-op City. Linda Collins shows us the latest edition of the Co-op City Times, the weekly local newspaper. There's a full-page grid, a schedule of daily classes at the three Co-op City Senior Centers. Here, there are so many activities. You never go to a class or, 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 or a knitting session and nobody's there. People are always there. And a lot of times, they're not really there to knit. They're there to talk. And so everybody knows about current events. And if you didn't know it when you got there, you know about current events when you leave because there are people talking about those things. Now you have to go home and read the paper or, or watch the news because you need to talk tomorrow. So you lift each other up in that way because you want to be part of that, right? I'd like to be part of that, but I'm not a senior yet. You're only six months shy of 60, Ken. With those encouraging words, Aaron pulls me across the street to visit the center anyway. The activities Linda told us about are trademark of Norks. These supportive service programs are administered by the Jewish Association Serving the Aging. Marianne Fabian Medina is the JASA program director here. The services that we offer are, but not limited to, housing, mental health, home delivery meals, older adult centers, classes. We offer paint and sip, yoga, steel drum classes. These activities are important for older adults in Co-op City, especially because nearly half of them live alone. Some of them, they don't have family members, they don't have friends, and they only have uh, us. So it's, for some of them, it's really hard. And this hour, 
an hour and a half, it makes a huge difference for them. It's true. NORCs and the social support programs they offer actually delay institutionalized care for the elderly. Older folks who live in NORCs move to nursing homes half as often as people who don't. And you can see why, given the most popular class JASA offers, line dancing. Sharon Clark is the president of the Bartow Swingers, one of Co-op City's line dancing groups. She's 76 and started line dancing after she retired. I had been looking in the Co-op City uh, Times, and they had a couple of advertisements about line dancing. And I said, hmm, you know, I like to dance, but I didn't have any experience in line dancing. So I ventured over here, and I went into the class. And it was like, ha, oh, the pearly gates opened up. This is what I want, you know. And uh, I just, I couldn't stop. The Bartow Swingers are a group of about 50 seniors who get together three days a week to dance. The oldest uh, could be about 85. And she is actually an instructor herself. They also perform. When you go to the uh, nursing home for performance, and probably some of the dancers are older than That's some of the right. people there. I yes. mean, how does, how, does, how does that look to you? It gives us joy. Because we're showing them that you don't always have to sit down. You can get up. And uh, we're we're same ages as, as you are. and But it does give us joy when we play a song and they get up and dance with us. The Bartow Swingers spread joy beyond their own community, but they help each other to be healthier too. We share information. Health-wise, eat your vegetables. Did you go to the doctor today? Did What are you taking? Oh, vitamin D. We, we share a lot as a group. For the line dance class, we as a group have been together for a very long time. So we know each other. We know each other's children. We know each other's husbands, been there through life, been there through death. We feel like family. When I meet with my fellow dancers and when I'm, good morning, sis. Hey, sis. How you doing, sis? I call them sis because they're like sisters to me. And that word has taken over the group that they respond, I'm good, sis. So it, 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 it kind of, that one word makes us a part of each other. So what happened during the pandemic? Did it shut everything down? It, it did. And I could see the sadness in the seniors' faces. You know, when we would talk on the phone, I could hear it. And uh, they were missing. They were missing that sisterhood, that camaraderie. And my husband said that he couldn't take seeing me look so depressed. <laughs> So my birthday was around that time, and he uh, told me, go on Amazon and find you a music box. And I found one. And I put out an email to about 50, 60 people. It was like that movie, that baseball movie, If You Build It, We Will Come. Field Dreams. Yes. 
and I went outside with that music box and, and, and another speaker and they were coming from all angles with wheelchairs, with canes, they were out there. I had about 70 people and they danced, they danced, they danced. They, they were so happy to see one another. And I said to myself, this is, this, this, this was something, you know, to bring all of them out here like this and, and to give them so much joy. So how long do you think you'll be dancing? <laughs> Until they throw that dirt on me, because I'm going to dance, dance, dance. <laughs> Co-op City wasn't built to be a retirement community, but due to its affordability and social bonds, that's what it became. What impresses you about Co-op City, Ken? How energetic everyone is, how people support each other. We've been to other places with strong social networks, but there's something very special about a neighborhood where people take care of each other for decades, essentially until death do them part. Yeah, there's such commitment to helping each other age in place. Pride, even. And it's working. The nearly seven-year increase in life expectancy from the neighborhood just across the highway is extraordinary. Co-op City isn't just an affordable housing development. It's a boon to public health. And we'll need to learn from its example because seniors are an increasing part of our population. Within a couple decades, a quarter of Americans will be 65 or older. Commissioner Cortez Vazquez points out that the population of New York City already looks more like Co-op City. That means this other population needs to know the needs and wants of this aging population. We also need to build, reconstruct this notion of family and communal living congregate living. If you're older in New York, the likelihood is that you live alone. And so we have to look at how do we construct communal uh, opportunities for older adults? And also, how do we construct services for those that are infirmed? It's more affordable to give them community-based services to deal with their daily living needs than, than to institutionalize them. How is it that we enable that? And do that at the largest scale. Can't we build more co-op cities? After all, it's proof that when we create workforce housing that's affordable, people live with security and dignity. And they have better health. That's true, but it's not that easy. Co-op City is also a cautionary tale. It was largely funded through a New York State program called Mitchell Lama. But there hasn't been a new construction project under Mitchell Lama in half a century. Today, a lack of government support and restrictive zoning rules have left the U.S. without sufficient housing stock. The nation is estimated to be nearly 4 million units short, and the undersupply means that available housing can be enormously expensive. The problem is particularly acute for seniors whose assets haven't kept pace with housing inflation. Affordable and safe housing is something we all deserve, and Co-op City residents are the lucky ones. It's no wonder that once people move there, they stay. Like Co-op City's eldest resident. What do you want to know? So, can you tell us your name and how old you are? I'm Louise Ignore. I'm 110 years old. I was born in 1912. I lived Ms. Louise, as she's known here, is older than the five train. How long have you lived here in Co-op City? 
I'm living in Co-op City over 50 years. And you live by yourself? Yes. I have an aide that comes. I love Co-op City. What, what do you love about it? If you want anything, everything is here in Co-op City. When I was well, I, had, I always had a lot of friends. I used to meet them at around lunchtime. And then I used to go to the center there. I had my lunch there. Uh, we danced, we did exercise. I was pretty active when I was young. I used to go all over Co-op City, around the Greenway, you know. I was a, I was a walker, walker and a dancer. <laughs> I miss going to the center. Yeah. Thank God that I got people that, that think of me. Yeah, care yes. for you, yeah. And I got nice neighbors. I got a wonderful friend here in Co-op City. Her name is Frances Perkins. How old is Frances? 75, but she does everything for me. Yeah. It is hard for me to go out now. And now I find it hard to walk. <clears throat> I used to go out with a walker, but I can't do that anymore. Yeah. Well, I'm 110. Since so few people live to be 110, I take the opportunity to ask Ms. Louise, what's the secret to long life? I was never married. That's why, that's why I lived that long. <laughs> I'm going to tell my wife that. Um, I can't complain. I had a nice life. I can't complain. Nice life indeed. Miss Louise has slowed down a bit now, but well into her hundreds, she was still dancing. This is what 108 looks like in Co-op City. Dance, Miss Louise! Yes, man! The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson and Aaron Bump. Music for this episode was provided by JASA and Audio Network. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.